Welcome to the Code of Traditional Archery, brought to you by Primitive Stone Archery and the founder, Grant Richardson. Welcome to the Code of Traditional Archery, our second podcast in our Lessons Learned series. My name is Grant Richardson. I'm the owner and founder of Primitive Stone Archery and the Archer's Trinity Shooting Method. Inspiration for the name itself, Primitive Stone Archery, directly correlates to my father, a trained anthropologist, researcher, educator, and lifelong archer and bow hunter. His shop was and is still filled with the smell of Douglas fir and Port Orford shafts, and on his shelf were two napped arrowheads. Both he napped and mounted himself on arrows and are examples of late to middle woodland points. And I marveled at them. I still do. Both the ingenuity of those ancient peoples to create something out of rock, chert, flint, obsidian, and manufacture them into something deadly. On the walls hung longbows from early hill-style string-follow American to English war bows, Drake, Browning recurves, and Black Widow bows. There was always a project ongoing, a Flemish twist string on the jig or an arrow building project, and it was a place that inspired my imagination of stocking whitetails on overcast, cold October days. The knot points themselves served as the foundation and inspiration for primitive stone archery and the connection to past hunter-gatherers that exist in all of us, and more importantly, the challenge that connecting to that process brings. This episode is entitled, Failure is Our Teacher. It was gray. Light snow had been falling, and the sun was hiding as it had been for several days behind the stratus formations, looking more like waves than clouds as large flocks of northern mallards beat against it to attempt to land in the slough that connected the river only a hundred yards from where I was sitting. The old oak tree had been used by another bow hunter many years prior, and I looked down at the creased and weathered two-by-six plywood that I was standing on and wondered how it had been nailed across the wedge branches. It was a wolf tree. It had used up that old oak, almost all the nutrients of the surrounding vegetation, and it stood mountain-like at the lee of the hill, a shelter for roosting owls and porcupines, and my vantage point almost 14 feet up its trunk. I had been waiting for one of the grouse that had come straying out to me as they often did late in the day, and I would imagine myself slowly pulling the string back on my recurve before sending a turkey flet shaft at one of the bush chickens my grandfather exalted as partridge. Imagining, however, was all I could do at that point as I had no bow with me. I was still quite young. Before I could legally hunt, and pulling the hooded gray wool sweater my grandmother had knit for me tighter around my chin, I shivered in the briskness of that afternoon. As I was saying, this was a time before I was able to carry a bow into the woods. Although, at eight years of age, I had already been following my father around in the woods and water since I was quite young, acting as both his flusher and retriever for grouse, and his rear paddler for jump-shooting ducks in our canoe. This, though, was the passion that haunted my dreams, bow hunting for white-tailed deer. Earlier that summer, at a large outdoor shoot, I had met some other youth who had been hunting already from the USA, a little bit older than me, that had youth archery seasons, and I was supremely jealous of them. My bow at that time lay in the back of my father's truck, a 1970s Bronco. In its case, consisting of two pillowcases I'd camouflaged with brown and green magic markers and stitched together with pieces of latigo and nylon backing from one of my fly reels. Midday, I was allowed to take my bow out and shoot in the sand pit with all the other hunters in that area, 
where they gathered every noon hour to share tales of deer seen, not seen, and other missed chances and folly. Everyone had nicknames for each other, some if not all relegated to a part of their persona or ability with a bow and arrow. And traditional archery and bow hunting for me then was just bow hunting. And I developed a romantic view of the recurve in those days, with their wood and laminations and curved faces sending arrows with authority to their intended targets. My thoughts went back to my father, who I'd been deer hunting with the past two weeks of the season. A trained anthropologist and school teacher by trade, his time in the woods were counted as his church, where he alone himself conducted quiet sermons with the woods and wildlife and shared them with me. These last few years were different, as he'd begun to take him with more and more instead of having to pull at him when he arrived at home for details of his hunts, and I was able to be present for this sacred part of his life he now shared with me. The area we were hunting was one of the first archery-only bow-hunting deer seasons in Ontario at the time, a tree nursery spanning 1,200 acres, and my father had been one of the individuals who'd been a driving force to start archery-only seasons in those days as president of the now-defunct Ontario Bowhunters Association. It was moments later I heard it, a snap, like soft lightning, behind me, almost seven yards away, up the rise on the short ridge in the woods. I paused, trying not to breathe. Listening, I heard only the wings of the mallards whistling against the tort above my head. The wind picked up and fell and subsided as the evening thermals began to swirl gently and I strained to hear what sounded like branches snapping in behind me and up to where I'd heard the arrow, evidently deflecting off a tree far behind me moments earlier where my father was sitting in a large pine tree with his longbow. I sat there for almost a half an hour wondering what had happened and was looking skyward at the skeins of waterfowl flying. Had Dad shot a grouse or maybe a snowshoe hare? He told me he wanted one for a stew earlier that week. I was startled from my daydream by my father's voice after almost an hour. He was there in front of me suddenly, moving methodically and making no noise as he beckoned me to climb down and motioned for me to be quiet. I got a shot, he said. My heart jumped. I was with dad and he'd gotten a shot. My excitement at what happened was stifled by the look in his face. I was bursting at the seams to find the deer, but his expression told a story that would unfold much later and would end up being one of the greatest learning experiences that impacted me as an archer, bow hunter, and woodsman. He relayed what had happened. The scrape he had been sitting on was visited by a large eight point and he had gotten a shot off. He'd seen what looked like the arrow deflecting as it reached the deer and a sound I'd heard was indeed the arrow careening into the woods. We found the shot location in some hair and were unable to locate the arrow. The hair was white and sparse. There was a very faint blood trail, and what we found little of the blood was as much as not finding the arrow as well. It began almost 60 yards from the shot site. The deer had bolted and ran before slowing down, and we followed his track without much sign at that point. My father was meticulous, and it seemed like we'd only gone a little way, and it was taking a very long time. He turned. We need to back out and give this some time, he said. I was upset at this, and I began to worry. I'd been sitting for two weeks. The temperature had been unusually cold for late October, and it didn't make sense. My dad was a great shot. He had taken deer before this. And we had some blood and didn't understand as we packed into our truck to head home. 
This is the first blood trial I'd been on alone with my dad. And that week prior, he had been having me tag along more and more since he was seeing deer with me than more with his buddies. And his superstition was proving correct. After several hours at home, we went back out and got onto the blood trail again. It was now midnight, a Sunday night. And while all my peers were in school, sleeping for the school the next day, I was in the dark woods trailing a deer with my father. I felt special, important, a part of something much larger than myself. Driving back into the tote roads that night seemed ominous, and I recall feeling like my role of tagging along had become suddenly elevated to another status. I was not just my father's son anymore. I was his hunting partner, and he needed me. The blood had been spotty from the beginning, and we soon found where the large deer had bedded down, and it didn't look good. There was little to no accumulation where he had laid down and gotten up and walked from the temporary bed in the light skiff of snow, and it looked like he'd even tried to feed. My father moved slowly and at times on his hands and knees crawling and stopping. The snow was quite sporadic. At times I had no idea what he wanted me to follow or tag with the orange paper trail marking tape, but as we went on at a snail's pace, I realized... It was actually the track of the deer, a broken twig or leaf that had been stepped on and not just the buck's blood, which was extremely sparse that I was flagging and helping him locate. That was the start of a long night. The season was over at the end of the next day and my father knew the woodlot would be full of hunters looking to fill their tags and likely walking all over the track. The snow on the ground was light and there were patches here and there as the buck track entered a swamp that became a large bedding area. We pushed our way very carefully through the dense cover, swamp maple and tag alders, combined with soft ground and tangles. We had to crawl over several yards at times, and I was growing tired, wet, and cold. My father pushed on slowly and helped me look for sign, ensuring he was still on the right track. Is that literally what we were following at that time? Track. He would pause and check the trees as well from time to time, and stop and wait for minutes at a time that seemed like hours to me in my youth. It was now early morning. We had been on the track for almost six hours, and as we crawled out of a pocket of alders into a small clearing, I looked up at the sky, my hands holding a tiny flashlight that had been given by my grandfather, and I held it up like a blazing torch to ward off the darkness. We stopped and sat for a moment. My mind thought of all my friends in their beds sleeping, and only a few hours they'd be getting up to school. The wind bit at my face, and I began to feel for the first time that the world was much bigger than I'd realized before. Time changed for me, and somewhere deep down, something far more ancient than I could ever imagine was touching me. My father turned to me, and I could see him in the ambient light waving me forward, slowly to him. His face had changed and looked calm and centered. He sat down kneeling in the snow, and somehow I knew that he wanted me to follow. We kneeled together like we were giving credence and honor to the darkness and clouds swirling around the waning crescent moon above us, and he pointed with his finger and whispered for me to listen. I could see nothing, and I strained to hear in the darkness and blackness that was now consuming us with our flashlights shut off. I froze in place and could hear noises in the field ahead of us. After what seemed like almost a half hour, we edged out into the clearing and my father turned and waved me to follow him forward. We walked to the edge of a small field and he shone his light across a large cutover that was growing up young maples. And there, standing at the edge of the field, was the buck, with three does. We watched them vanish like shadows into the opposite woodlot, the buck showing no sign of slowing down and looking just fine as he cleared a tall fence 
no signs of injury. We took a large loop around the field to an adjoining road to walk the long trudge back to where our truck was parked and the sun was beginning to rise. I looked up at my father and asked him if he thought the deer was fine. Yes, he said. He was feeding along those apple trees on the fence line there with the three does when he broke out of that alder swamp. We followed him through. I was disheartened. Did he know he hadn't made a good shot, I thought to myself, and why did he follow the deer for so long? From the beginning, he told me later. As we walked out, he knew he had shot low and under the deer. Not only that, but the blood trail or lack thereof and white belly hair at the site where the shot was taken also told the same story. He had found the hair when he first looked at the shot before fetching me and thought he had shot a little under to begin with. Nonetheless, a hit, even non-lethal, wasn't been made and he needed to ensure, due to the fact that he'd drawn blood, the animal was not wounded and going to be lost. And I said, why so long? We owe the deer that much. I shot and drew blood and we didn't give up until we were certain. We. Hmm. This was new for me. We chatted about the whole event and I could tell he was disappointed, but at the same time, something about being out in that cold weather and sitting for hours and pursuing the animal with me through the darkness of that night had created an education for me as a young bow hunter, even more so than finding the deer that cold night. Knowing that the deer would survive was some solace, but spending that time with him that day and the following morning going through what we did brought us closer, not just as a father and son, but in that aspect taught me to understand the difficulty that hunting truly brought. And failure that day was my teacher and my father the guide. I learned through failure that it isn't about success, and for the first time I'd been tracking an animal hunting and using all the skills he and my grandfather had been teaching me until that point in my life. And I connected to a part of my ancestors that night, the pursuit of food and the responsibility that comes with it, stewardship. I had hardened and grown as well, and I often reflect on what I would not have learned if it had been so easy to partake in the learning experience in those moments of failure and hardship in the woods. That night opened my mind to the depth of the process of what success is measured by, and more importantly, the lessons that failure teaches us in connecting to our primal nature, in facing those failures head on, forging the iron in our souls to survive in adversity and an ancient resilience. My father has been a grandfather for over 20 years now and allows me the room to teach my kids through experiences. These experiences are important for him to observe and watch, almost a confirmation for me. And these days, when he does watch, he does have his quiet moments of checking in to make sure that things are still going in the correct direction. Ethics stewardship, and the promise that that connection that he brought forth into my life is not lost. He still shoots his longbows weekly and mentors his grandkids as well. All his grandkids have had bows given to them and arrows and quivers made, and they all shoot. Our youngest received her first hunting recurve this past fall and will be out chasing game with it this fall. Sure, experience and success and failures will forge her own ways in the crucible of nature and I will celebrate them with her. Creating a legacy is critical for youth and our sport today. The lessons learned, conservation, stewardship, and hunting the hard way as a vehicle for those lessons will ensure that traditional archery remains salient in the coming years. I've reflected on that event 
in my life often as I grew older, and its lessons have never been forgotten and at times learned again in both the successes and fairs that we walk through as traditional bow hunters. It's important. It's important that the sport that we love, if you're just getting into this or that we um, are maintaining, if you've been doing this for a long time, continues to flourish in these times. And, you know, really, my whole intent at developing this is a belief in developing a Western system, you know, a weapon system platform that shooting a recurve is all about getting close and getting accurate under dynamic conditions, along with, you know, developing those peripheral benefits of resiliency, intention, and focus. You know, I see myself as more of a guide teaching a method of problem solving. And no two people are alike. No one method, person's group has a monopoly on the truth. And the truth is different for each individual. It is up to the individual to seek that truth through trial and error, to develop a foundation and grow in their own way. And that's the foundation that primitive stone archery offers without the rigid dogma attached to a shooting method. To a bow hunt with a stick and string requires knowledge, not just self-knowledge, but habitat understanding as well as terrain analysis. You know, this results in an intimate connection with the environment a process that is an art form that requires discipline and commitment and will teach you more about hunting than shooting. The fine analysis of all this is the synthesis of said process that will separate you from being an archer into becoming a bow hunter. Thank you for listening. Uh, Appreciate the feedback we got on the first episode. Our Wild turkey season opens here in two days, and we'll be out chasing toms and um, probably learning from some failure at the same time. Thank you for joining us. Again, appreciate your feedback. Follow us on Instagram, and uh, I encourage you uh, to find someone to mentor and to get connected into this great sport and join uh an organization like Compton, Traditional Bow Hunters, some great folks there doing some great things for all of us and ensuring that the legacy of traditional archery and bow hunting remains in good hands. Thanks for listening.